Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. The only woman on federal death row, Lisa Montgomery, is scheduled to be executed by lethal injection on December 8th at the Federal Penitentiary in Terre Haute, Indiana, for a kidnapping resulting in death, the 2004 murder of Bobby Jo Stinnett, who was eight months pregnant. Montgomery has exhausted all attempts to appeal her conviction and death sentence. Clemency petition and letter from 800 organizations, survivors, and individuals that work to combat violence against women to reduce her sentence to life without parole is expected to be filed in the coming weeks. Montgomery suffers from severe mental illness, requiring a regimen of psychotropic drugs to function. According to her lawyers and witnesses, she suffered years of severe childhood abuse. A survivor of incest and sex trafficking, she is diagnosed with bipolar disorder with psychotic features, complex post-traumatic stress disorder, temporal lobe epilepsy, and cerebral dysfunction. Both sides of Montgomery's family has a prevalence of psychiatric and neurological impairment, including mood disorders, intellectual disability, PTSD, and schizophrenia. Montgomery was psychotic at the time of the crime, has always accepted responsibility, and remained deeply remorseful when she became appropriately medicated. It is extremely rare for women to be sentenced to death, according to Sandra Babcock, faculty director of the Cornell Center on the Death Penalty Worldwide, and an expert on women and the death penalty. Only around 2% of inmates on death row are women. Nationwide, only 54 women have been executed since 1900. In the cases where women are sentenced to death, prosecutors often use gender stereotypes against the defendants. Babcock also says, the constant in every case she has seen is an overwhelming history of trauma and that Montgomery's is one of the most extreme cases in terms of the severity and endurance of violence that she experienced in childhood, as well as her marriages beginning at the age of 18. Her defense team at the time of the initial trial failed to connect Montgomery's childhood trauma and her later behavior. At least a dozen other women across the U.S. have committed a similar crime in the past 20 years, though Montgomery was the only one sentenced to death. In the other cases, prosecutors opted to not seek the death penalty, or juries to not impose it, because it was obvious the women were suffering from profound mental illnesses. As of October 1, 2020, there were 2,553 death row inmates in the United States. Montgomery's death is scheduled a little over a month before the inauguration of President-elect Joe Biden, who has pledged to end the federal death penalty. If Montgomery's execution goes ahead, she would be the first woman executed by the federal government in almost 70 years. She would also be the ninth federal inmate put to death since the federal government resumed executions last summer after an almost 20-year hiatus. Seven men have been put to death by the federal government this year, 
and Orlando Hall, a black man who was convicted by an all-white jury, is set to be executed this month. We are happy to report that information activist Jeremy Hammond was released earlier this week from the Federal Correctional Institute in Memphis after seven years of incarceration. Jeremy was arrested and sentenced to 10 years following the 2012 Stratfor email leak, which revealed that the private security firm Strategic Forecasting was spying on human rights activists on behalf of various governments and private corporations. Jeremy was greeted at a halfway house by members of the support committee that have been fighting for his release. He is set to spend the remainder of his sentence in the halfway house under community confinement. Prisoners in El Paso County, Texas, are earning $2 a day to move bodies, supposedly voluntarily, of people who died of COVID-19 to refrigerated trucks serving as temporary morgues since the county morgue is full. The inmates are so-called low-level offenders, working eight-hour shifts every day to relieve the overworked employees at the medical examiner's office. The office is providing them with personal protective equipment, with a sheriff's deputy and two jail officers supervising them. The prisoners are being housed together while they work to prevent the spread of COVID-19 in the jail that usually houses them and will continue to live together for two weeks after their work ends. The inmates are working temporarily. The Texas National Guard is planning to replace them. COVID-19 has been raging in El Paso County for the last month, and in all but two days this month so far, the county has seen more than a thousand new cases each day. The Supreme Court refused to reinstate COVID-19 protections for people incarcerated in the Wallace Pack Unit, a geriatric prison in Texas. The case filed by Laddie Valentine and Richard King argues that failure to protect those confined in the prison from the pandemic violates the Eighth Amendment's prohibitions against cruel and unusual punishment. King and Valentine, like many prisoners in Wallace Pack, suffer from chronic health conditions that make contracting COVID-19 particularly dangerous. The court claims that they failed to use the prison's grievance procedure but a dissenting opinion from Justice Sotomayor argues that these official channels are a, quote, dead end in a prison that she calls a, quote, tinderbox for COVID-19. We now share an update sent to us from Michelle Freeman about her husband, Vernell. We focused on Vernell in a recent episode, which we'll share on our website. Michelle's impassioned plea on behalf of our partner is both urgent and inspiring, and we will continue to air messages from her in the future as Vernell's situation evolves. Vernell was moved to a new facility where Miami Correctional Facility only chose to share all the negative and made up reports on him. They did not give them a proper report as to his medical needs, and he is now suffering daily with migraines from lack of pain meds. Westfield Correctional Facility is taking their time with his medical requests. When I called the facility to ask about his medical well-being and to let them know that he needs chronic care and has many medical issues that were not resolved and that he needed help, they told me that he needs to put in a medical request. The wait time on his medical requests causes him to have migraines for days, sometimes weeks at a time. Vernell is also not receiving his doctor-prescribed diet trays at this facility. 
He was given a seven-day review for his first week at the new facility, and he was told that he had a failure to adjust because he had prior write-ups at Miami Correctional Facility and that he is a threat to security. Why would that information be used to describe his current actions or behavior at this facility if this is supposed to be his seven-day review? He has not displayed those behaviors while he was there. Vernell's move was strategic because Miami Correctional Facility knowingly had an active case against him and knowing it was a conflict of interest for him to be there while that person worked directly where he was housed, they chose not to rectify it nor to notify him of it in a timely manner. When they moved him, he was told about having an active warrant and two cases filed against him from the Miami Correctional Facility for the first time. He has an active warrant and is being charged with felony five battery. Vernell was sexually assaulted at Miami Correctional Facility, and when he looked for someone to help him, he was met with dogs and stun guns. We need your help to fight against the cases they have against him. He did his best to stay calm and to get help, and he was met with force. His case should be dropped, and Miami Correctional Facility should be responsible for their lack of help and for knowing that he was in a vulnerable state due to being assaulted. They should have done something about it. He asked for help over and over and did not get it. We are still in the fight. Vernell has currently asked for a compassionate release due to his current medical status and the fact that there are still new cases of COVID-19 at the facility where he is now. We plan to see justice prevail. We are so grateful to everyone who has helped and is helping to get the word out so he can be saved from this unjust and unfair treatment. Please know that if you have a loved one incarcerated, you need to check on your loved ones no matter where they are and advocate for them. He is not the first person nor the only person to be treated this way. We appreciate each and every one of you. Stay in the fight. Injustice shall not prevail. Thank you. This week, we speak to two people from Florida Prisoner Support who detail the methods of retaliation and silencing that the Florida Department of Corrections has been deploying against prisoners and outside supporters. This includes the disappearance of several inmates in the Florida prison system, new laws directed against outside advocates, the implementation of new and brutal pandemic-safe weapons that allow COs to harm prisoners without touching them, and more. Many of these tactics are being used to punish prisoners for self-organizing to stay safe during the beginning of the coronavirus outbreak, as well as a method of retaliating against prisoners who are in contact with organizations like theirs. Specifically for like how Florida Department of Corrections has handled COVID has been non-existent. Prisoners have been placed similarly across the country, but have been placed in solitary confinement when they have a positive case which limiting obviously limits their access to daylight and activity. Um, they have been placed into um, two-person um, bunking situations, so they're crowding cells. They have limited access to food. Um, one facility in particular didn't have running water for a day um, and had to respond to that with a phone zap. Lunch is being served at 6 p.m. and dinner is being served at midnight have the ability to feed people properly in time or in nutrition. They're just being fed peanut butter and jelly sandwiches or bologna sandwiches, um, which obviously doesn't even speak to the, you know, conditions of which those meals are provided. Um, we've had folks tell us that they're being retaliated against with, their, with um, guards spitting chewing tobacco into their food. 
people are um, dying rapidly. We have the uh, number one rate of COVID deaths in the, in the country for a state prison facility. The head of DOC was COVID positive after visiting a facility and being celebrated for his non-response to the pandemic. Prisoners have been going unheard for a long time since the beginning, since before people have died at all, um, back in March and April. Okay, so back in April, um, when we saw the first deaths inside Florida Department of Corrections, two people had died, uh, COVID-related deaths that the state tried to cover up and hide until the press found out about it. That very same week, um, prisoners had penned a letter to the governor asking for him to take action to prevent COVID from spreading through the prison system. Also that week, the Florida Department of Corrections introduced their plans to build an administrative management unit, which is a whole separate prison where they intend to house people who have STG or STI labels, um, security threat group and security threat individual. The latter is a designation they created specifically in response to the activism that's been building in our state so that they can slap that label on anyone and they will be qualified to be sent to this new prison within a prison which has no clear way out. Since then, they have used COVID and the fact that most of the population are on quarantine and unable to get out in the streets and speak out against these new measures. And there's no public hearings being held to oppose these new measures. Um, they have introduced a slew of new rules that all directly um, suppress communication that target black and brown prisoners. In addition to the administrative management unit, they've introduced um, electric taser darts. They sold those to the public as a safe way to harm prisoners without having to actually touch them. So they're pandemic safe. They had already built the administrative management unit before introducing that one also. Um, so normally they hold public hearings so that we have an opportunity to speak our mind about these developments, but because of COVID, there's been no opportunity for that. So they've been able to slide all these new um, rules and policies in without um, much um, opposition from the public. They also announced that they would be partnering with ICE. Um, they announced that they would be shifting from paper mail to electronic mail, which is 100% censored and controlled by them. And on the streets, DeSantis introduced a new bill, which he plans to push through this month now that our um, legislative session has opened, which would make it um, illegal to protest, would bring felony charges, and adds a RICO element to charge people who organize a disorderly event with um, conspiracy and racketeering charges. Um, this has implications for folks inside too, because if you are um, connected or in correspondence with a group on the outside, you can be um, included in that conspiracy charge. The name of that law is Combating Violence, Disorder and Looting and Law Enforcement Protection Act. So they're looking to push that through this month and in this way, in tandem, the state and the Department of Corrections within the state are initiating these new limitations on communication and movement and activism. 
we've had a couple other new rule changes that directly affect our work and organizing on the inside, such as they're trying to make it so that only people who are approved on a prisoner's visitation list can put money on their accounts. Um, the implications of that for mutual aid and support networks that have been growing in response to their repression is you know, really harmful. So if we go through and look at their efforts to do away with paper mail, their building of a new prison within a prison, them trying to keep people from supporting each other financially, and their new STI label that they're putting on people, it has added a whole new level of repression that we haven't seen yet. Um, usually to get sentenced to long-term solitary confinement, there is some sort of act of violence or some sort of um, disruption to the security of a prison. And like we said, um, with the people that we're seeing being targeted and disappeared into solitary, it happened in the middle of the night without incident or evidence. Since COVID started, you know, prisoners, of course, were the only ones taking any measures to protect themselves and attempted to fashion their own masks out of, you know, whatever they have, socks, t-shirts, sheets. They also attempted to organize social distancing measures within their wings, and those were all met with physical retaliation and disciplinary reports. So people were getting uh, sent to solitary for wearing a mask or um, trying to social distance. Um, as soon as the masks were approved and the DOC had to actually take steps to create quarantine areas and to ensure that people had masks, they never enforced that their staff wears any masks. But in order to comply with the quarantine, the need for a quarantine area, what they would do is empty out a whole wing of the prison, take all those people and house them with other people so that we have cells that normally house two people. They were putting three people in those cells and not to mention 24 hour lockdown, seven days a week since the beginning of the pandemic. They also allegedly stopped all transfers and movement in order to curb the spread of the virus, which we know is untrue because they were transferring people continuously throughout it if it suited their needs, specifically politicized prisoners and whistleblowers. So we actually saw a lot of movement amongst our comrades during the pandemic when they had claimed to have stopped all movement. When we saw our first two deaths of prisoners inside in Florida, that was the second week of April, um, and they reached the 100th death mark at the September 1st. And it's been two months since September and there's already over 80 additional deaths. So it's rapidly increasing uh, amongst their inability to do any sort of mitigation to protect people. There was a story we had in August. Uh, we held a mass public funeral outside of the Florida State Capitol in Tallahassee where we created the exact number of body bags of, to represent each prisoner that was lost and we hand-delivered them to Mark Inch's office at FDOC headquarters. And a family member came out whose father had died inside from COVID, and she shared his story of 
how he was in the hospital on an, on a respirator for oh, like 14 days and then he recovered they sent him back to the facility and he died three days later like their inability to manage these health needs is rapid enough to completely make a person lose their life from recovery within days within a week of the event that was held at the state capitol the public funeral honoring all the lives lost to covid inside the florida department of corrections they took another one of our comrades in the middle of the night and placed them under investigation and sentenced them to solitary confinement so the chronology of events seems like they are retaliating against our contacts and loved ones inside for actions that are happening out here that mass funeral event put us in contact with more families directly related to the fear of covid and the and the loss of life from covid inside of florida prisons um but we try to stay in contact because they limit our communication so much that we try to stay regularly in contact with direct family members um, as much as possible. The Florida Department of Corrections Security Threat Group and Security Threat Individual Labeling is strictly for their use within their system to directly deal with protesters in the streets. Our Governor DeSantis has um, introduced a new bill to be able to apply uh, felony charges to people who are in groups of seven or more and behaving in a disorderly fashion as determined by the police who happen to be present. They've added a RICO element to those charges and they've also included a stand your ground element that makes it um, legally okay for somebody in a car to run over a protester if they feel threatened. The way things have played out this year down here, um, one of the rule changes that they introduced, which we mentioned, the electric dart tasers, that came out the same month that a correctional officer beat a man to death, a prisoner with mental health issues who was fully shackled and cuffed behind his back, was beaten to death inside a cell. His name was Christopher Howell. So it's very, you know, up the way we're seeing the pairing of these new rules and and then their actual you know actions all amidst covid too um they've spent every bit of their time energy and resources on instituting new policies of repression and violence meanwhile more deaths than any other state um, in the country In recent years, alongside the national prisoner resistance movement as it grows, there's been also a growing organized resistance inside and out to the violence and racism that is the Florida Department of Corrections. Uh, prison administrators, they know this and they understand that they must regain control and now morph their system into something more palatable for the public, especially amidst the Black Lives Matter movement. You know, just like in the streets, we've got video surfacing of overseers beating defenseless prisoners, uh, murdering people while in full restraints. They paralyzed a woman last year. So they understand that their system is under threat and the pandemic has been a perfect cover for them to slide through all these heightened control policies without much public opposition. 
However, it's also served as a you know reminder that their system depends on the prisoners doing the actual work. They can't run without prisoner labor and know-how. Uh, when COVID took hold, they were forced to lock the whole state down. No movement, everyone on quarantine. They got a glimpse of what their system looks like without the prisoners performing all the work. And they were you know, food, laundry, maintenance, repairs, inside, outside grounds. Uh, they even had pigs running chow and mowing grass. And people inside took notice of this too. So, you know, Mark Inch was sent in to fix this, to restructure the system. And how do they keep more people from realizing this and getting organized and refusing to do the labor that keeps the machine running? Well, whether it be a sit-down, a strike, or an all-out uprising... You know, they can't afford for their prisoners to stop working. It's hard enough just to justify the $3 billion in tax dollars that we spend to maintain the state prison system. They can't be paying pigs to mow grass. So they isolate potential leaders. They're silencing people who are organized or politicized or have certain ideas of abolition or even reform. Their plan is to restructure the state into bad disciplinary camps and good incentivized camps. The STGs, or you know, gang labels, which is what they are, that they arbitrarily apply to people and which disproportionately affect black and brown people are a perfect way to designate certain segments of the population to those bad camps, which also serve to scare everybody into submission because they'll be in a perpetual state of trying to get to the good camps. All the bull programs that exist within the DOC or educational resources, services, you know, whatever, will be focused on those good camps and then peddled out for the public to see to reassure them that their money is being well spent on rehabilitative services and in order to justify future spending. Meanwhile, those who are seen as irredeemable are sent to the bad camps, which have no classes, no resources, no movement, no communications, to be starved, tased, beaten, and buried up in you know, KKK Crackertown, Florida, Panhandle. And actually, if you look at a map of these alleged bad or disciplinary camps where prisoners are not worth investing in uh, beyond the meager amount that they have to be fed in order to extract their labor, you know, if you look at them on a map, they mirror the slave plantation belt that swept across North Florida before it was morphed into the prison system that we know today. You know, just three years after the 13th Amendment limited slavery to criminals, to be exact. The Florida Department of Corrections was born in 1868. So yeah, uh, Florida has found a way to use the pandemic to kill off people they deem worthless, to institute new tactics of violence and oppression, and to attempt to divide the prisoner population even further along lines of race and class. We'll air more from them about the state's retaliation against prisoners during the pandemic in next week's episode. This has been KiteLine. Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. Please keep sharing the number for our coronavirus hotline. We'll continue to air messages from prisoners who call in from the inside and family members calling in for support for their loved ones. You can call in on behalf of a loved one or they can call in to record their message about the impact of the coronavirus on their facility at 765-343-6236. You can hear previous episodes of our show at wfhb.org forward slash kiteline. 
You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. For more information on the stories we air on KiteLine, check out kitelineradio.noblogs.org. If you or someone you care about has been affected by the prison system, you can call us to be interviewed or to record a message to be played on the air at 812-269-2512. We also want your feedback and to share your story. Feel free to write us at kiteline at wfhb.org. If you want to support our work, you can find us at patreon.com forward slash kiteline radio show. Any funds raised beyond operating costs will be sent to folks on the inside. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every Friday for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.